לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. Welcome to another edition of Parsha Talk. I'm Rabbi Elliot Malamed in Highland Park, New Jersey. With me on my left here, Rabbi Barry Chesler of Solomon Schechter Day School of Long Island. And Anche Chesed, the Rabbi of Anche Chesed, Jeremy Kalmanovsky, is with me here in the bottom shelf here. It's Hanukkah this week, Shabbat Hanukkah. We're going to say Chag Sameach, Chagurim Sameach. Great to see you guys. And we are talking about Parshat Vayeshev. We would talk about Hanukkah, but we'd have to do a whole, a whole special session on Hanukkah. I have to admit, the story of Joseph is just, it's, it, it captures more of my imagination than Hanukkah, although Hanukkah is the pivotal moment in Jewish history. Okay, we'll leave that. Uh, we got to start with, with the story of Joseph. And I think one of the ways that we can uh, approach the story is I want to ask both of you to give me your best characterization, your best character analysis of Joseph. Who is he? What is he? How, you know, how is he appearing here? And uh, support that with some good, some good text. Barry, I'm going to start with you. Okay. I think what we need to begin with is to note that Yosef, who is the subject of the longest stretch of text in Breshit, is not a patriarch, he's not one of the Avot, because he has no direct communication with God, he's not a recipient of the divine Brit, the blessing of both the land and progeny. Um, and I think that's, that, that's where we begin, because he's someone different. He's one of 12, he's not the sole transmitter, either receiver or transmitter of the covenant. And here, I, I think we have to recognize that he comes off as something of a spoiled brat, someone who really knows how to turn the knife in to his good effect, although the results ultimately don't turn out so well for him this week. He'll rebound next week. Um, but I, I think that, you know, I was struck as we were talking before that he lords it over the sons of Billa and Zilpah, the two Pilag Shim, I guess we would say the lesser wives, because his status is greater than theirs. And you would think he's the youngest of all the brothers, um, but he only lords it over the four that are the children of Billa and Zilpah, and they're not even the four youngest next to him. Right. Um, right. So I find that that's striking. He comes back to his father with this bad report. And we might think that if you have dreams that you're going to be number one, you don't have to tell your brothers that. Because if it's going to come to pass, they'll find out when all in good time. So what's the point of telling your brothers? It's only to put the knife in. Jeremy, your take, your 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 analysis. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree with with some of what Barry said. Uh, he he does not come off as very nice, but I think that it's at least partly because he is so just prodigiously talented. 
Um, he's not playing the same game as, as everybody else. And it is true that he's not in the, in the triumvirate of Avram Yitzhak Yaakov, but that's partly because, you know, the Bible, the Bible is, is accustomed to peeling off the inadequate children, peeling off Yishmael and focusing on Isaac, peeling off Esau, focusing on, on Yaakov, uh, which we don't do with Yaakov's children. All, all 12 children are considered, you know, still in the, the people and they all have, still have their progeny. But first of all, there's a tremendous theme in rabbinics about Yosef was supposed to have the 12 tribes, but something might have happened with Eshet Potiphar, with Mrs. Potiphar to interrupt that, that progeny. But um, I think that Yosef is obnoxious. He is a spoiled brat. And it's partly because he is so talented. He's not wrong that they're all going to bow down to him. He's not wrong that he is going to be the rescuer. He's not wrong to think that he's the instrument through which God is going gonna, is gonna to care for this people. And it stands him in pretty good stead because while he is suffering all kinds of difficult stuff in Egypt, he's still plugging away and he is still Ishmatzliach. He's always successful. In the jail, he's successful. As a slave, he's successful. And so there's something, even in the obnoxiousness, of, of Joseph's, you know, prancing and lording it over and, and, and putting his brothers in their places, uh, there's something also charismatic and charming about this guy who everything that he touches, even when, it's, even when he's in prison, everything becomes some sort of source of success. So I, I want to I locate the story within the larger story of Jacob here and then, and then put some of the, I blame, put some of the responsibility for Joseph becoming Joseph squarely on the shoulders of Jacob, who we have talked about over the last three weeks, is himself a complicated character, but, but you know, having experienced what he experienced and having gone through what he went through with his brother Esau um, and experienced, you know, the, the, the favoritism, you, you would think that he would have learned. But the Pasuk says, Israel loved Joseph from all of the children, because he was the child of his old age. So I, 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 we, could, we could find the, 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 the germ of the jealousy in that pasuk. I would even go to last week's Parsha where they were parading all, all of the, the family and Joseph was the protected uh, uh, progeny. But, but here it's, it's obviously clear that Jacob loves him, loves him more than everyone, gives him the ornamented tunic, the ketonet pasim, and and that gift, that favoritism, it just throws the whole family into a disequilibrium for for all the reasons that both of you mentioned, which is that he's got enormous talent and he's got enormous charisma also. But but take it, Barry. Take it. It's his second generation favoritism because he favored Rachel as well, right? He loves Rachel, and as Jeremy mentioned when we were discussing the sons last week. Leah does everything she can to please Yaakov, having six sons in part, and naming them in ways that might inculcate love for her on the behalf of her spouse. And here he's the Ben Zukunim because Rachel finally has a kid. And that kid has to be number one in Yaakov's eyes. Now this 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 thing is a little interesting about the Benzikunim because um, because it, it seems obvious and Barry said this before and it's 
seems quite correct that the that the real reason that he loves Joseph is not that he's Ben Zakunim, but that he's Yerachel's son. Yeah. And there's and and there is another person who's going to be born who is is Ben Zakunim, and that's Binyamin, who is also Rachel's son. I feel like what we're looking at with the, this uh, ascription that the that the issue is um, that he's Ben Zakunim uh, is like something maybe got peeled off the Benjamin story, or some sort of confusion between the Benjamin story and and the the, the Yosef story, uh, because it's the Rachel thing and not the age thing that I think is really decisive. You might want to say, because of what's going to happen um, next week and the week after with, with Vayigash, Miketz and Vayigash, that Benjamin is going to be placed in the Joseph spot. And he's and now it's time to send Benjamin into slavery and Judah comes up and rescues him. Um, that Benjamin plays the role of the, the Yosef part two. Right. Uh, but I think that that it's, it's not really because he's Ben Zakunim. Because really, it's because he's Rachel's son. So okay, so we follow the story. The dreams. Joseph has these two two dreams: the dreams of the the sheaves in the field that bow down to him, the sun and the moon and the stars. They're bowed down to him, and 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 the meaning of these dreams is is very apparent to to the brothers, to to Jacob itself. Uh, comment on this verse here. He tells, he he says the second dream. The brothers were wrought up against him and his father, Shamar et Adavar. His father kept the kept it. What is that? So I, I would say that I would say that uh, he, the the father who, this is like like you said, it's a it's a it's a it, it points back to the Jacob story because Jacob recognizes who the the most important heir really is. And Jacob, you know, we're going to have in the in the Devarim in, China, in Sefer Devarim the law that you can't marry two sisters, and we're going to, we're going to have, that's earlier. But the the law that if the child of the hated wife is the is the physical bechor, the firstborn, and the child of the beloved wife is second, you cannot treat the secondborn because you love the mother more as as the firstborn. But that is precisely what Yaakov does, and I I think it's actually. Right. You could read it. You could read it either way. You could read it either Yaakov has done a bad thing, or you could read it that the normal way—and this is how I'm going to read it—the normal way of treating children is that the physical bechor wins, but that the redemptive stories for the Jewish people, that the moments of destiny, somebody has to do something abnormal. And so Aviv Shamar Tadavar to me means Jacob sees what's actually going on here. Right, but I would add here that when Jacob Shamor had Hadavar, he also is going to continue that theme of the second son being the favorite because he's going to bless in a couple of weeks of Friday before Menasha. Precisely. And Joseph doesn't want that, right? Joseph wants to be the firstborn, and in many ways he is. He does get the double portion. But Yaakov is telling him at the end that it is the younger that has what Jeremy calls the redemptive power. So I, I want to just take a, a, a different tack here, which is saying that that what follows on Vaviv Shamarta Davar that Jacob remembered this, and and to me that suggests nothing prophetic, uh, but but something like here's a guy who keeps score, right, and here's a guy mm-hmm. who who is filing it, 
And, and we all know people like that who, who 20, 30, 40 years after something happened, they, they remember. <laughs> and, and so remembering, and so, so then make sense of the following, which comes on the heels of that, which is, they, they go to, to, to tend to the flock at Shechem. And uh, Israel says to Joseph, go, uh, I, come, I will send you to them. So what's, what's in that? What, what, what is part of that? I mean, Jacob is not stupid. Jacob knows that the brothers don't like him. Is Jacob setting him up? What, what's, what's the motivation behind Jacob sending the, to Joseph to the brothers? Well, I, I, I don't, you know, we were talking before, and Elliot, you, you have some more to add about this, which I hope you, you will about Jacob's own guilt. I'm not sure that he's, I, I'm sure he's not consciously setting him up, but he is playing a thoughtless role in this terrible thing that's about to go down. So, so go ahead. I want to offer a different interpretation. So I was thinking when we were talking earlier, Joseph is not a patriarch, but which patriarch is he the most like? And to me, he's the most like Yitzchak. Because in this whole thing that happens to him, he doesn't say a word. He completely submits. And that would make Yaakov like Abraham. And in a sense, this ordeal is kind of like a replication of the Akedah in a different way. That Joseph is, is being sacrificed for the greater good. So I, I think I, I'm going to have to meditate on that. That's a it's, a it's a lovely frame to put Joseph in. And of course, there is a bit of Akedah going on in almost all of the, the characters. We could talk about Agar, we could talk about Sarah, we could talk about Rivka, we could talk Ishmael and Asa, certainly. Exactly. But, so, but, but say say a little bit about what you what you um, think about the the persistent guilt that attends upon Yaakov's experience. I think, I think that there is something here. I think that in his understanding of the boys, he he is he wants to establish Joseph Joseph's own autonomy and. He wants to give Joseph a, a, a bit of independence, despite the fact that he is putting him in danger. And I think that I, I, I wouldn't be able to, to figure out, you know, certainly in the next 30 seconds, whether this is a conscious or non or subconscious desire. But there, the, the sending him forth is, is really about getting him to grow up. And he has held him back. And Shamar at Adavar, he, he remembers everything. He is also trying to confront the culpability of having restricted Joseph's uh, development. It's, he's 17 years old here. The, to us, 17 means he, he should be at the end of his adolescence. He hasn't even started his adolescence right now. He, he hasn't even differentiated himself from his parents, and, and he is being bluntly told, now's your time to differentiate from your parents, now's the time to establish your peer relationships. And, and the very next scene is that the, a, a person 
uh, is, he's wandering in the field. Jo, jo, he sees Joseph wandering in the field. It's Joseph is alone. Joseph has no, uh, you know, relationships. The person unnamed who moves the story along, which is beautiful device here, asks Joseph, "What are you looking for?" And he says, "I'm looking for my brother." That, that's such a great. Right. So a great. I say, I want to say heartrending verses of scripture. For yeah. two hundred, okay. Yes, yes. This is—it's a daily double. I'll—I'll I'll take heartrending verses of scripture because he is the—he is lost. This is—I always wonder, like when I read stories about the ancient world. Okay, you're in Hebron. Go up to Shechem, find yourself there. Like, well, how did anybody do anything? What did they have GPS? How did he? And he gets up there and he's lost. And and I'm just looking for a little bit of brother. Not just, I'm looking for my brothers. Looking for a little bit of brotherhood. And they they go. And this is another great line, great ironic line. Is, you know, as as the rabbis say, prophesies without knowing that he's prophesizing. He says, "Okay, let's see. Let's throw him in a pit and see what happens to his dreams." Yeah, baby. Let's see what happens to his dreams. Uh, uh, so here here he is like Abraham. Because Abraham says that my father caused me to wander in a strange land. And here Joseph is wandering in a strange land, but he doesn't have God to show him where he's going. But he, do, I think that he does, because I think that he's an instrument. I think he is an instrument of this divine plan. And later on, he will ultimately say to his brothers, you know, listen, you guys, you guys tried to hurt me, but it was all in God's hands. And I don't really consider you trying to hurt me because, you know, uh, uh, you thought of it to bad, God planned it all for good. So I do think that he is, there's a bit of a chessboard thing going on here. Um, and Yosef, uh, uh, you know, the other, the other, an, an other part about this, it's such an interesting multi-level story as, as they all are, Yosef is going to be buried in Shechem. So the fact that he's thrown in a pit in Shechem, um, you know, is, is this other bit of foreshadowing that he will ultimately be buried there. Yeah, and 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 of course, you know, the, the irony of the brothers that, that don't want to have anything to do with him, they want to kill him. And, you know, we have a few a few subplots going on here with Ruben. Ruben says, you know, don't, you know, don't, let's not spill any blood, let's throw him into the pit instead. And then, um, they, this is, this is like off. a little bit of, this is a, this is a, uh, if one wanted to make an anti-Semitic joke about, no, 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 we can't kill him. We can only make money on him. <laughs> well, that's the point. And, and, and it, pull, it brings out the, the, the point of brotherhood because so Ruven goes off and, and the brothers, the rest of the brothers are, are lechol lechem. They're making a feast. And then it says, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites. We won't touch him. No, <laughs> he's, he's our something brother. To... He's our flesh. To which I always want to read this and think, like, like, yeah, this is this is this is what brotherhood is all about. Let's not murder him. Let's just make him a slave. You know? Do you think that there's something significant about the fact that they sell him to the Yishmaelim because these are their first cousins? Yes, I, uh, it's all like they also sell him to the Midian. So, so the Midianites get weird here. Uh, it's a, a little rough spot in the, in the text, but it's as if they're saying, um, you know, the family pattern that we have is bad siblings gone, good siblings stay, Ishmael gone, Esav gone, 
let's sell this guy to the Ishmaelim and, and have him peeled off and let us remain. But I don't know if that's true or not. Maybe it's just coincidental. Oh, I, th- I, think, I think what makes it work is that the Ishmaelites are cousins. They're distant cousins. It's like another branch of the Abrahamic family. And so, you know, it'd be one thing if they were like Canaanites or... You well, know, he's not just the flesh of the brothers. He's the flesh of the... You know, it's like, well. you know this is the, the Sicilian branch of the family. <laughs> and, you know, we, we have a relationship. We've, we've had, we do some trade, you know, and, and there are some coded elements of the trade that goes between the two of them. And, and the fact that Ishmael... Yeah, apparently are, they're bringing cannoli into Egypt. <laughs> <laughs> there, there, there's, something, there's something to be said there. They're, they're going back and forth. He said he's holding the Tony Soprano. All right. So, so, so let's go to the tearing and renting of clothing and give you heartbreaking verses of scripture for 400. Okay. Reuven uh, returns to the pit. Joseph is not there. And they say, you know, what happens? They, they, they have to cover up their crime. So they, they slaughter the goats and then, they, the, the text is written in a, in a very difficult way. Could mean that they, they slice it up, or it could mean what is normally translated, they, they send it forward. They, they send it by, you know, by courier, or they have it sent. They bring it to their father, and they say, We found this. We found it, lying in the field somewhere. Hakerna, recognize it. And, and the word haker is a, 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 a motif in the story. Is it your sons, your sons, your sons? And he recognizes it and says, My son's tunic, a wild animal ate him, tarof, toraf. He is certainly torn, torn. He tears his own clothing. And he, tr- they try to comfort him. He refuses to be comforted. No, this is this is a the the art of the of the Torah is so beautiful and so incredibly well executed. This is the guy who just a few weeks ago killed a goat and wore goat skins and deceived his father with respect to clothing. So now his sons kill a goat. And have another deception with respect to clothing, and now Yaakov is just the die was cast when he de- when he deceived Yitzhak. He had to do it because that's how the destiny had to unfold. But it does not escape the midah keneged midah that comes from that. It's also interesting, as as you point out and told the story, the slippery sleazy brothers don't even have the don't even have the cojones to lie. They just set him up to draw the wrong conclusion. They don't, they don't even just honest, they, they don't have, they can't tell an honest lie, right? They can't just say, your, your child is dead. They have to say, um, what is this? Do you, what do you think this is? And they let him draw the wrong conclusion. Well, they do lie because they tell him that we found it. Yeah, right. And but I think that there has to be, there has to be some buy-in. So the question remains for me, is Jacob's response a natural response, or is it over the top? When he says he refuses to be comforted, is that a way of getting a dig in at the brothers? That 
if it had happened to you, I would have been comforted. But this is Joseph <laughs> after all, and I cannot be comforted. So again, I want to say that the, the, the driver of the story is Jacob, notwithstanding the fact that Joseph will become the driver of the story. But Jacob, Jacob controls the emotional tone here of everything. Every scene is dependent on his emotion. And so by not by refusing to be comforted, he destabilizes the family system to such a point that, that they don't know how to function. They're, they're basically paralyzed. And, and the reason, you know, many reasons we can interpret for his inability to be comforted is, is and I think it's a desire, it's a choice he's making. He, you know, we were talking before, he's, he's imprisoned in this guilt. He's imprisoned in his own anger. And he is imprisoned in his own sense that he is responsible for this. Well, but it also could mean that he holds the brothers responsible as well. And that's why he won't be comforted, because he blames the comforters. The two possible, you know, clusters of interpretation, really, which is he, 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 he senses something is wrong there, but he also senses his own responsibility. And if you are a parent and you feel that you're responsible for the death of your child, God forbid, but oh. there's there you you can't you you can't recover. That how do you how do you even begin? It's it, that's why I say this is you know the heart wrenching verse for you know this is this is the the one of the ultimate verses of 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 tremendous you know soul crushing searing power. Okay, so so we get we have a, a brief interlude in the parsha Judah and Tamar. We're not we're not going to go into that, and then we have of course Joseph in Egypt. And and okay, so so talk about his prodigious talent here, and and the fact that he gets to Egypt and he becomes the steward for for Potiphar, and that is something that uh, he understands. Jeremy, you want to pick that up here? That in in terms of the, he's just got raw talent everywhere he goes. He's got he's got raw talent. He's Ishmatzliach. He's always successful. Um, and and he just he wins people's favor. So he works for Potiphar, who is the Sarah Tabachim. He's the either the chief butcher or just whatever he is, the king's the king's right hand man. And and everybody loves him. Some people love him a little too much because he's so good looking that Mrs. Potiphar would like to to be you know more than friends. And and he resists in in a really. And friends with friends with benefits, uh, and he resists. And the Torah portrays him, and he's known in Jewish tradition for this reason as Yosef Atzadik. He's he's Joseph the righteous because he says to her, "I'm not going to sin against my master and against God." I mean, this is like a universal human morality that um, that that uh, uh, adultery would just be, you know, wrong to Potiphar and wrong to the cosmos. He can't. So he he. Hangs in there, and according according to the rabbinic reading, uh, he actually does give in, but then, uh, shall we say, withdraws from the predicament at the right moment, and and then she accuses him of rape, and because when he runs away, she grabs his she grabs his garment, which is another story. Well, another way the story is driven with clothing. She grabs hold of his 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 garment. She says, "Look, look, look! He he came to uh, he came to attack me." And so then he's sent into jail, whereupon once again, everybody loves him. He's just, he's, so, he's, he's just great. The way you tell the story, he's friends with everybody. Yeah. 
the way you tell the story emphasizes that Joseph is, his loyalty is extraordinary. So the reason why he doesn't commit adultery is because of his loyalty to his master, both in the household and the cosmic master. And that means more than the enticement of Mrs. Potiphar. When he gets to the prison, he's going to be loyal to the people that he meets there as well. So I, I think there's enough ambiguity in the story. You know, he talks a lot, Joseph, and, and the, the talking in that moment where she's trying to seduce him, you know, is, is a way of he, Joseph is trying to kind of, you know, finagle out of this problem, despite the fact that, that there's plenty that he wants to accomplish. You know, we, we, we may have questions altogether, you know, as modern readers about his, his sexuality altogether. Uh, and, and um, you know, the fact that he, he refuses to lie with Potiphar's wife may, may in fact be rooted in other issues. Uh, however, I mean, see it as loyalty, see it as he does succumb to her, see it as he ends up where he ends up. And, and this is where the, the Parsha is going to end up with the, with the real cliffhanger. He ends up in jail. And in jail, he meets the uh, baker and the, the cup steward for cupbearer for Pharaoh. They both have dreams. And what happens? Barry, tell us what happens. Well, they're very similar dreams. Um, one is going to be restored. That will be the butler. And the baker, in very similar language in the Hebrew, will have his head removed, um, which back then also meant death, not just a modern phenomenon. <laughs> and, and it's striking to me that the baker makes no comment after he gets the bad news. And he goes to his fate. And the butler, however, is adjured by Joseph, when you go back to court, please remember me. And the very last line of the Parsha is, of course, that he goes back and not only does he not remember him, he forgets him. Now, for the rabbis, Joseph is going to be in prison for an extra couple of years because he put his faith in the butler and not his faith in God, which seems to me to be a pretty remarkable misreading of the story. Um, however, what the verse suggests to me is that it points forward to Amalek because Amalek is going to have a similar commandment where it's going to be involve both remembering and not forgetting this double locution. And it's, uh, in, in a way, a beautiful end to the Parsha because we're really left wondering what's going to happen to Joseph. You know, it's, it's so great because obviously the Parshiot aren't in the Torah. We decided, you know, the rabbis decided the Parshiot, and this is a, a masterful move is is you know that that the that the butler you know completely forgot forgot Yosef and and then it could write, run right into Miketz but it doesn't we we spend a week with that with that suspense so the, the suspense is also a character development suspense because we are we are with Joseph in the prison as God is with Joseph we are we the readers are there and we are wondering does this experience, will this experience in a way transform him? You know, here's this, I mean, this cocky adolescent brat uh, that has had already 
two experiences of, of great travail. And um, is this going to change him at all? Prison, prison in Egypt, <laughs> first of all, his, his great-grandmother was in prison in Egypt, and his children will be imprisoned in Egypt. This is, you know, part of the reason the story is so profound is that it, it, it not only foreshadows the fact that he's going to be buried in Shechem, but the fact that, that being thrown into the boar, the pit, is the experience of the Jewish people. And what happens to us when imprisoned in the boar in Egypt? What happens when we're imprisoned in the pit? It's awful. Uh, and it's an incredibly important growthful step on, our, on Am Yisrael's journey. And we're going to have to leave it there. This has just been uh, amazing. I can't wait to get to the next week's Parsha. We'll find out what happens if we don't know already. And we'll have searing, heartbreaking verses for... Oh, yeah, for weeks to come. Weeks to come, we got. Weeks to come. In the meantime, Hanukkah tonight, or we're recording Thursday night, this Shabbos, Shabbos Hanukkah. We want to wish all of our viewers, we're getting getting a bit of a following. We love having you. Thank you for joining us. Write to us, hard to talk at Gmail. And Shabbat Shalom and happy Hanukkah.